Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, the number one oddcast for people who appreciate real, different conversations about business, marketing, and life. On this episode, a, a super powerful conversation about life design and particularly midlife design. And, you know, frankly, wherever you are in life, I think you're going to find this a powerful, fascinating conversation because we continue our run of legendary authors and entrepreneurs. On this episode, Chip Conley. He was the founder of Joie de Vivre Hospitality, which is the second largest operator of boutique hotels in the United States. He started the company at 26 years of age back in 1987, and he held the CEO position for nearly 20 four years until uh, until he sold the company. And then uh, interestingly enough, after that, you know, what do you do as a second act if you're a, a hugely successful hotel entrepreneur? He ended up joining what at the time was a pretty unknown startup called Airbnb uh, to help the young founders of Airbnb navigate their growth and create a whole new travel category. And of course, that's what they were able to do. On this episode, we talk about why Chip thinks that people need a uh, midlife reset. Listen, especially for what Chip calls his emotional equation. And, and there's a ton more here based on Chip's new book called Wisdom at Work that I think you're going to love. Go to lockhead.com, check out the show notes and key takeaways for this episode. And I also want to say a special thank you to my friend Sybil Klein Michael for connecting Chip and I. Thanks so much, Sybil. Now, in Japan, athletic brand ASICS needed an ERP software system to help drive growth throughout Asia. And that's why they turned to my friends at NetSuite from Oracle. You see, ASICS needed to move quickly to create a complete business system for their sales operations in India and Singapore. And they needed an ERP, an ERP suite that could be managed without the help of an IT department and an ERP suite that was flexible enough to integrate with its corporate on-premise financial software. And that's why they chose NetSuite from Oracle, because NetSuite is the number one cloud business system. And NetSuite offers you a full picture of all of your finances in one place in real time, right from your phone or your desktop. To schedule your free demo right now and to receive your free guide, the seven key strategies to grow your profits, check out netsuite.com slash different. That's netsuite.com slash different for your free guide today. Now, speaking of careers, are you looking to start or restart your career? My friends at Crash are here to help. Check out crash.co slash different. That's crash.co slash different, where you can learn how to win your next job hunt in the most unpredictable, creative, and innovative ways. Crash.co slash different. As well, if you're a regular listener, uh, and in particular, if you've listened to uh, Lockhead on Marketing, you've heard Eddie Yoon and I talk about the power of a data flywheel. And I think we're getting to a point where data is actually more valuable than cash. And that's why I love my friends at Splunk. You see, Splunk is the leader in data to everything. Splunk helps you bring data to every question, every decision, and every action in real time. Check out Splunk dot com slash d to e and you can learn how to turn data into doing that's splunk.com slash d to e as in data to everything now hey ho let's go
Chip, it's great to meet you. Christopher, I'm honored, and I wish I was in Santa Cruz with you right now. <laughs> Where are you right now? I'm actually at the beach as well, a surfer beach, uh, an hour north of Cabo San Lucas in Baja, California, Mexico. It's uh, an area called Pescadero. And uh, El Pescadero, it's right next to Toda Santos. Yeah, no, I, I know exactly where you are. That's cool. I assume you're down there on uh, pleasure or actually given what you do, it could be multiple reasons. What are you doing down there, Chip? I'm, uh, we have our Modern Elder Academy here, which I'm sure we'll talk about. And it's the world's first midlife wisdom school. So we've got a four acre campus right on the beach. And you said it's the world's first midlife wisdom school. Wow, I like the category design there, Chip. Very thoughtful of you. <laughs> Very thoughtful. Thank you. I, I, let's talk about it. You can tell, you, you, you can give me feedback. I, I, I like it. You know, on the other hand, I'm not sure what you think of Modern Elder, which is another brand I came up with. Uh, um, but uh, so I look, this is great. I just love the fact that you and I are going to be able to talk turkey today. Yeah, I, I'm so gra- glad our friends that will put us together. I, I, yeah. I you know, look, some people criticize me about this, but I don't give a shit. I admire the hell out of you. I think you're fucking awesome. Oh, oh thank you. Well, why they, they give you the shit for because you, you say that to your guests or? Yeah. Or, okay. Well, I mean, I guess I wouldn't be a guest if you didn't like me. Right? <laughs> it's, I mean, your, it's your choice, not mine. I mean, I, you know, the fact that you've, you've asked me, uh, we've decided we're going to do this together. It's great. I love it. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, way to go on the career and the life, eh? <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, I think we're all role models for each other. One of the, uh, long ago, after I started my hotel company, one of the things I learned was that calling someone a manager or leader didn't quite get through to them, that they're also a role model. Mm. So for a whole month, we said to all of our managers and leaders in the hotel company, you're not going to be a manager or leader this month. You're a role model. In fact, anytime you use the word manager or leader, you can't use it. You have to use role model. And it was fascinating. And I, I say this from the perspective that we are all role models for each other in life and especially in the workplace. Yeah, when you realize your role model, it steps up your game a little bit in terms of you know, how, you, how you're accountable to not just yourself. It's so interesting you say that because I'm reminded of uh, a buddy of mine, Jay Larson, who's a software CEO, great executive. He and I were having a conversation on the podcast about um, mentoring and people ask him all the time, you know, would you be my mentor and this and that and so forth and so on. And he shared a story about Ray Lane when Ray was the uh, president of Oracle. Mm-hmm. And he said, look, here's the best mentoring I can give you. Me being fucking great at my job. <laughs> and so it's a little bit like that, isn't it? There's no doubt. Yeah. I mean, hopefully there's a little bit more instruction than that. Um, <laughs> just model. Yeah, Write some I mean, stuff down. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I think what's interesting to me in the era we live in today is, especially in the workplace, it's not about mentorship as much as it's more about mutual mentorship. How do we learn from each other? And, you know, the last seven years I've been involved with the three founders of Airbnb, four years as the in-house mentor to Brian, the CEO, and the head of uh, global hospitality and strategy, and then three years as an advisor. But the truth is that I was brought in as the old guy to help them who, because of my hospitality and leadership and entrepreneurship experience. But they taught me as much as I taught them, truthfully. And that's the, that's the era we live in. 
uh, the hierarchy of wisdom and the physics of wisdom doesn't just move in one direction from old to young. It actually moves in both directions. What I see, though, unfortunately, for a lot of people in midlife and later is they're not open to being curious and being that beginner's mind. They don't want to look like an idiot at age 45 or 50. And so they're not actually that open to learning from someone younger than them. And yet, Christopher, 40% of Americans today have a boss that's younger than them. And by the year 2025, the majority of Americans will have a boss younger than them. We have no history in the organizational world like this. So I think it's an interesting era where we have to learn from, you know, from, you know, generations can learn from each other. Well, and the other, the sort of cool thing about you saying that is I got to believe given uh, how old you were when you founded Joie de Vivre, were, were you, you were in your twenties, were you not? I was 26. Yeah. yeah. So you were the younger boss for a very long time. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I had some of that a, a little bit in my career as well. And it is a weird thing when you are, you know, 28 years old, 30 years old, and there's a 45-year-old reporting to you, right? It's, it's, it's weird on both sides, at least in the beginning. It is, it is weird on both sides for sure. But the, in the past, like 20 years ago, it wasn't very, very frequent or it wasn't something you'd see much. And today you see it a lot. And it's partly because we live in an era where digital intelligence, DQ, is prized. And there's an impression, and it's probably a generalization that has some accuracy to it, which is that younger people are digital natives. They're, they have more fluency and ability to learn in the digital world. And so what you see is companies, it's not just tech companies, this is just limited to Silicon Valley. You know, all, you know a Silicon Valley engineer feels like he's over, he or she's over the hill at age 35. That is true in, in, in a lot of Silicon Valley. But what's happened is because seven of the 10 most valuable companies in the world today are tech companies, it's almost like all companies want to look like tech companies. And therefore, this, this need for digital intelligence or DQ is true in the advertising industry and financial services and retail. And so you see more and more companies hiring people at, at very young ages to have very senior positions. I think it's great. And I think what we have to recognize is expecting young digital leaders to miraculously embody their relationship wisdoms and emotional intelligence that those of us who have been around a little bit longer have built over decades is an unrealistic expectation. And, you know, whether it's WeWork or Uber or Theranos, or I can list a bunch of companies that could have used what I call a modern elder by the side of the CEO. Yeah, it, it is a fascinating insight. And I didn't realize that 40% of Americans already have a younger boss. That's right. The other interesting thing, and this may be tangential, but uh, maybe you'll, cha you'll, help, you'll, you'll chase some zebras down some unicorn holes with me, but um, <laughs> it also strikes me, and maybe this is more so in the tech world uh, that I grew up in, but you, you'll tell me that if by age 45-ish, plus or minus, you aren't acknowledged as, use whatever words you want, leader, expert, sensei, uh, subject matter expert, craftsman or woman, you know, et cetera, et cetera, that, that if generally by your peers, by plus or minus 45, they don't view you as competent, effective, reliable, yeah. and, and at some level of mastery, you're kind of fucked. 
That's that's the other thing that's going on here in my mind is if you're going to be respected, like I I think about myself in the context of the the young people that you describe, and I work with lots of them, right? And and I think part of why they don't blow me off as the old guy is because like, hey, you know what? I kind of am the old master sensei, and and you have done that, right? You have made the transition from up and coming contender to heavyweight yeah. champion of the world to retired champion, now coach of the next champions. You, you did that. Someone once said, uh, Chip went from being boy wonder to modern elder pretty quickly. <laughs> so, yeah, I, you know, when you're founder of a company at 26, grow it into the second largest boutique hotel company in the world. But I did that over 24 years. So what is very true about the past, and the past being 25 years ago maybe, is generally speaking, we didn't see companies blow up to the size they do as quickly as they do today. And especially if you're in the bricks and mortar world like I was. So it took, yeah, it took me to grow, you know, from one person to 3,500 people over 24 years, 52 boutique hotels. But I had a, an awful lot of iteration along the way in my skills and my wisdom and how I, you know, metabolized my experiences. And so by the time I got to, you know, the time I was selling, it was a different, a whole different story. I, the thing that you said that I want to come back to, so which is, there is an element, this is, a, this is part of the reason why the U-curve of happiness, which is one of the most interesting social science uh, discoveries in the last 10 years, which shows that people generally have a reduction in happiness from about age 25 to 45. And then at 45 to 50, it bottoms out, sometimes into the early 50s depending upon the uh, country so the, in the world. The graph kind of looks like a smile, yes? It looks like a smile. It looks like the, yeah, exactly, the Amazon smile, except for at the bottom of the fucking smile, <laughs> you're at 45 to 50, and that's when you hit your bottom. And this varies. Your, your mileage may vary, so to speak, depending upon where you are on this. But what, what's absolutely true is that part of that has to do with this disappointment equals expectations minus reality emotional equation I like, which is we, we grow up with these expectations. And then it's, when do you hit that point where disappointment starts to kick in in a major way? And you sort of spoke to it at age 45. It's when you actually realize that the, the, the perfect soulmate that you thought your spouse was is maybe not your spouse, or that the kids that you were going to have who are going to all be president of the United States are, are now in prison. Um, or that opportunity to become a CEO someday, yeah, you could go and get a franchise of mailbox, mailboxes, et cetera, and set that up. But, you know, you're not going to be running a Silicon Valley tech company. And, oh, yeah. yeah my and boss, then life gets horrible, right? And one of your parents gets cancer or something. There's and that. And then there's the body starts to deteriorate. And, and what happens in midlife and midlife is really squarely at like 45 to 50 is about, you know, it's sort of, it's slightly early midlife. Midlife has been considered historically 45 to 65. I now call it 35 to 75 because people feel irrelevant earlier and they're going to work longer. So it's not, it used to be a crisis. Now it's just a marathon. So I think what's interesting is- Did you say, a, hold on. Did you say it used to be a crisis and now it's a marathon or did I, did that yeah. one blow by me wrong? <laughs> so say well, that again. What, what do you mean by that? The term midlife crisis is 54 years old. It was created in 1965. 
And let's just be honest, we've done zero as a society to actually tackle this midlife crisis question. There's some evidence that, okay, midlife crisis doesn't exist exactly except, long story short is people hit a bottom around 45 to 50. It just happens. The social science is pretty clear now across all cultures. It became a marathon because people start feeling irrelevant earlier in a lot of industries. And then it, it's a marathon on the, other, on the other end because if you're going to live to 95 or 100, you may work till you're 75. So midlife sort of ends at the end of your career. That's how historically how we've sort of thought of it in at least the social science world. And we sort of have an identity crisis because so much of our identity has been tied up in our career. And if we're not, our career and, we're and not the CEO everything. of Joie de Vivre anymore, then who the That's fuck right. are we, right? Exactly. And so one of the reasons that I created the damn Modern Elder Academy, which has been going on now for two years here in Baja, is because I was writing my book, Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder, uh, after my, you know, sort of depicting my experience at Airbnb and the fact that if we're living in a world where people are living longer, power is moving younger, and the world is changing faster, those three variables are completely creating an irrelevancy gap for people in midlife, where they feel irrelevant at a younger age and for longer. So, and the suicide rate in the United States for people 45 to 64 has spiked. It's gone up 20% in the last 20 years. So, what I decided to do is create this Modern Elder Academy because I believe there's a need for us to create a place where people can do a reset. The idea that you're going to go learn in your high school or your college and graduate school years, if you go to graduate school, then you're going to use all that knowledge you have for the rest of your life is imagining that you're driving across the, you know, the United States on one tank of gas. That's a long journey and you need more than one tank of gas. You need to, you need a pit stop occasionally. And yet, we don't have anything in the way of pit stops for people in midlife to ask themselves the question, what mastery have I mined? What wisdom have I cultivated and, and how could I harvest it? How could I repurpose it? And frankly, what is it I really want to do with my life? Because I've just frankly been living the life that my parents wanted for me to live. And I'm in a career that wasn't the thing I really wanted to do at age 22. But I'm now 46 and I'm I'm desperately unhappy and I know I'm not going to be CEO of that company and I'm not going to be any more likely CEO if I'm unhappy. So people are saying, how do I press the reset button? And so that's and the other thing too, I think a lot of us didn't realize there's a very good chance we're going to have multiple careers. That oh, this idea of a portfolio may or may life. not be connected, right? Yeah, I'm going to have a portfolio life and I'm certainly in terms of identity, um, I think if you're if you're hopefully having a, a a a life that you're proactively designing, let me say it that way, you're going to have uh, a, all kinds of identities, right? You're going to be a son, you're going to be a, a husband, maybe you're and maybe you're going to be a father, and we're going to be friends. And you and I should talk okay. about learning surfing later in life because one day yeah. we weren't a surfer, and then now we're surfers, and you know, and you're an entrepreneur, and you're an investor, and you're an and you, you know. A lot, a lot of us, if you're sort of going for it, there's a lot of use cases of you. Absolutely. And frankly, I think the time when we're most confused by all of those identities is around 45 to 50. And so we created something called the Great Midlife Edit at the Academy. And it's really within the first 24 hours, it's a week-long program, the first 24 hours, we do this Great Midlife Edit. And it's a pretty intense process. It's 18 of us. 18 people in the cohort each week. And 
But you go through the process of saying, what is it that's not serving me anymore? Whether it's a mindset, whether it's historical knowledge, whether it's an identity that I have been holding on to that really doesn't define me anymore, whether it's relationships that don't really serve me anymore. And in one day, you can't just sort of say, okay, it's all changed. That's why it's a week-long program, but that's why we do the hard part at the start. And in my book, there's four lessons in the book. You know, lesson one's evolve, lesson two's learn, three is collaborate, four is counsel. And so the first lesson, evolve, is really, in essence, saying in order to evolve, you have to edit some things. You have to be willing to let go of some things that are, are really meant to... They, they, Carl Jung, the psychologist, said long ago, you can't live the afternoon of your life based upon the, the rules of the morning. And this is sort of, you know, morning is pre-40, you know, pre 45. Afternoon is, you know, maybe 45 to 65. And then the <laughs> then evening you of your life. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm at 59, sort of. But the thing that's interesting is actually, this is where the midlife marathon, the evening of your life maybe has just moved from 65 to 75. Yeah. Because you're going to live 10 years longer, potentially. And if that is true, what do you do with this era of life where you're... Uh, you're sort of the young old. You were the you might have been the old young at one point yeah. in your life, and then at some point it flips, and it probably flips around forty five or fifty again. Damn that forty five or fifty! Why isn't there a book that comes out just says "Beware of forty five, uh, speed limit forty five, something that just sort of speaks to like beware." There's there's a I don't know about you, Christopher. We, I I grew up with the game of life. Remember that board game? Yeah, of course. In the, ga- the game of life, you, it, had, it had one path. There was a singular path. And if you get to the end of the game of life, you had one path. <laughs> Bullshit. That, is not, how yeah, it, that well, is not how it works anymore. No. And yet we sort of have a bunch of people sort of living their lives as if they're still on that roadmap and no one said slippery when wet. <laughs> or, or, you know, there's a U-turn ahead or whatever. Well, and look, I think it's, I think it's still a radical idea that you can design your life, yeah. right? That you can make a set of choices and take a set of actions that materially change the outcome of whatever trajectory your life is on. And you can do that intentionally, right? And then the other this thing, is- of course, we get to do is sometimes life profoundly fucking sucks because something truly horrible happens, yeah. right? Yeah. And we get tested. And then again, we have a choice. Who are we going to be, right? Who are we going to be when it's fucking horrible? And so, you know, the interesting thing to me about it is I think for a lot of people, it's a radical idea that we are more than just a reaction to something coming at us. Mm. It's a beautiful quote from Viktor Frankl in, the, in his famous book, Man's Search for Meaning, best, one of the most profound books on Amen, the planet. hallelujah. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is your power to choose your response. And in your response lies your growth and your freedom. Why we are not issued that book upon turning 18. <laughs> Although, let's start by saying it's a pretty depressing book. It's a, it's a psychologist in a concentration camp in Germany or in Auschwitz. Yep. Maybe he's in Poland. I don't, you know, he's basically you know, a Jew amongst the Nazis, and he's seeing what's happening in a concentration camp. What he saw on the, you know, what the, what it, the first half of the book's really hard to read because unless you're, frankly, if you're going through a bad portion of your life, 
read the first half of that book, and you say, wow, God, concentration camp. I haven't had that experience. My life is bad, but it's not that bad. It's, it makes you really realize how much pain humans can withstand and still live. And that's really what he learned was the fuel for people in a concentration camp wasn't how much they were eating. It was how much they used meaning or hope as their fuel and meaning even more so than hope um, because meaning actually has this something more, some, something deeper hope. Hope could, you know, a little kid can be hopeful, but I'm not sure a four-year-old necessarily understands meaning and meaning is weaving your life experience, your, some element of maybe even some spirituality around something bigger than yourself and the sense of wanting to serve um, and why, you know, at the end of this time, this terrible time you're going through, there may be some beautiful gifts that you're able to give people because of what you have experienced and what, what wisdom, the wealth of wisdom that came from it. So the idea that you could gain meaning from severe pain yeah. um, is at least somewhat of comfort while experiencing the severe pain. <laughs> Yeah. Is that somehow I'm being tested and I'm going to come out the other side of this thing a better person and fucking A, right? You know, the, 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 the biology lesson that we learned from when we were kids was the idea of the, the caterpillar to butterfly. Um, and imagine, imagine if, what if our life was the caterpillar to butterfly transformational journey such that, you know, in our 20s and 30s, we're that caterpillar on the leaf, eating the leaf, bulking up, getting plump, and then around 40 to 45, miraculously or strangely, we just basically start spinning a chrysalis and turn ourselves upside down and go into this cocoon that's dark and gooey that feels really scary and you don't know what's on the other side. And that is 45 to 50 or you know, midlife to some degree, early midlife. And then on the other side, there's a butterfly. Now, our societal narrative on aging is not <laughs> that biology lesson, but the U-curve of happiness actually shows it's true. And there's a bunch of evidence now that's starting to show that, frankly, there's a, there's a lot of unexpected pleasures of aging. Uh, let, me, let me use a, a couple examples here. The thing that everybody knows is that as the brain ages, it is not as good at memory or as quick as it used to be. The biology of the brain. Speak for yourself, Chip. I'm sorry. <laughs> What's your name again? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I couldn't help myself. The voice inside my head got loose. That's okay. That's okay. No, so 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 we know that we. So yes, there's an element of the aging brain has some has some flaws. One of the things that's true about the brain is it actually shrinks a little bit with time. And one of the things that is starting to be proven is that what the brain gets better at, at with time is the left brain right brain tango. What do I mean by that? I mean the following is that you, are, as someone who is listening to something or hearing something or just, you're able to more easily and adeptly move from your lyrical side to your logical side. You can synthetically think a little bit more, which basically means you're able to connect the dots and think holistically. <clears throat> so as you get older, your intuition gets better. Um, as you get older, you're able to um, be a better advisor at, externally because you can move up 30,000 feet in the air to see something that everybody else can't see. 
And so this is another unexpected pleasure of aging. Um, also, emotional intelligence actually tends to grow with age. IQ does not. It's relatively fixed in a lifetime. Uh, and that's true for you too, Christopher. Um, uh, but for, for EQ, you can cultivate and harvest your EQ over a lifetime. <clears throat> so I just sort of said, okay, gosh, the U-curve of happiness says people get happier. They actually don't even get happier. They get more content, which is an even a different state that in your 20s, you don't even know what that means. If you, if you, see, if you see the word content in your 20s, you think you're talking about content. <laughs> so it's like, no, it's not content, content. Okay, what are we talking about? Yes, as you get older, you get more content. As you get older, you improve your emotional intelligence. As you get older, you have better intuition and wisdom if you cultivate it. Uh, that doesn't mean that all older people are wiser than younger people. No, that is not the case. You know, one you of my favorite expressions about that yes. is that there's a difference between 10 years of experience and one year of experience 10 times. 10 times over again, exactly. I mean, some right? people I mean there's a lot of really life. stupid older people. Yeah, I'm not even going to start naming names, but you, you know, <laughs> we, we know of some of them. And, and I'm in a business discussion with one right now. And wow, uh, this guy has the IQ of maybe his shoe size. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's probably, yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, that's a good, I, what are you going to do? So how are you going to get through that with him, Christopher? Well, we'll see. We're right in the middle of it. But uh, he's been banging and prancing around like he's the tough guy and all this stuff. And um, he doesn't realize it, but he's negotiated himself into a corner. Mm. And um, we're going to let him know that he's in the corner with a two by four to the head and turn the tables on him. And, and he set the whole thing up, but he's so stupid. He didn't play three moves out and we did. And you're so just, you're about to, so, so Chris, your, your middle name is Checkmate. <laughs> Christopher checkmate lockhead. Um, it's so, gonna suck when he under he, see he thinks he's got the upper hand and he absolutely doesn't. And we're about to tell him, and he's gonna lose mm -hmm. his fucking mind. Yeah. Well, you know, but unfortunately, it's just stupidity. It's and it's, well, it's frankly exactly. it's not being professional. He's this guy's completely unprofessional. Yeah. Let let's let's use this as an example. Just say you know, life doesn't have to be a, fully adversarial all the time. Uh, it feels like it is based upon the, the the nature of you know discourse in the United States at times, but the but the truth is that there's ways to create collaborative relationships with people who you're at odds with and who are in different generations. Um, we have five generations in the workplace for the very first time now, and uh, you know this whole thing, okay, boomer, and you know, okay, millennials, and like, you know, the truth is, boomers, millennials, Gen Xers, Gen Z, and the Sionet generation all have something to bring to the table. It's like an intergenerational potluck. And the question is, like, how do you create organizations that know how to create a damn good potluck? So people are able to bring to the table what they do best and then learn from each other. Um, so I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic about it because my experience, not just at Airbnb, but in a bunch of other organizations uh, in the last few years, has been such that I am seeing a growing sense of people in midlife realizing the only way they're going to actually be relevant um, is to actually be open to changing and open to learning again. Um, the problem we have as a society, though, um, is... So the word adolescence is 115 years old. The, the whole premise of adolescence didn't exist before that. It did exist. People were adolescents, but we didn't have a word or a way to describe 
what was in essence puberty and the preparation period for adulthood. And once adolescence as a concept got introduced in 1904, we created public junior high schools and high schools as, as a way for people to prepare for adulthood. Well, I think it's time we do the same in midlife. It's time to just realize that there's a, an era that's now called middlescence, adolescence, middlescence. Adolescence happens around, you know, in your early teens to mid to late teens. I love teens. what you're doing, Chip. Keep going. I love it. Keep going. So middlescence, and I'm not the one who came up with it. This is gerontologists and, and the social scientists who came up with it, but it's not been popularized. I'm the one to help you to popularize it. Middlescence is a similar era of life where you're going through psychological, physical, hormonal changes um, between often between about age 45 and 60. And during that time, um, you are shifting out of the um, operating system of the ego into the operating of something deeper. I'll call it the soul. Um, is, this, and- is, this, is this the day you look in the mirror and you go, hey, uh, who put the picture of Dennis Hopper in the bathroom? <laughs> Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> well, you know what? I don't know if we see it in the mirror, but we certainly see it on Facebook when someone takes a picture of you. Like, oh, or you, the worst is you go to your reunion. Go to your high school reunion in your 40s or 50s, and you're like, oh my God, do I look like these people? Yes, you do. Actually, the funniest um, thing about that is, I don't know if you had this experience, but people either look the same plus or minus to me or yeah. I don't recognize them. Yeah, <laughs> like, there seems to be very little in between. It's yeah, and it, uh, let's be honest. It's men tend to actually not age as well as oh, women. Fuck the men on, are, a, on average. I was at this event the other day, Chip, and there was this guy there who I hadn't seen in I don't know maybe fifteen years, and uh, a former work colleague, and he came up to me and started talking to me, and he's talking to me in a very familiar way, like he knows me, mm. and so I'm responding but I don't know who the fuck he is. This is what um, name tags are for. <laughs> well, I think everybody should wear name tags all the time in life. And anyway, so I'm having to sort of fake it till I make it because this person either thinks they know me or does know me. Anyway, you know, within sort of the first three minutes, I realize who this is and my head explodes. <laughs> oh my God. He looks terrible. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's, that's a long subject we can go into there because well, it's yeah. I think what's interesting to me on this uh, is that we don't have, you know, the, in the twentieth century, we had three new eras uh, created. One was adolescence, as I said, that was a nineteen oh four creation, and helped people to understand that you know there's a there's a what we call a liminal period, a transitional period between childhood and adulthood, and that's adolescence. The other, uh, a second uh, period of time that actually got defined in the 20th century was retirement. Retirement didn't really exist in the 19th century. Um, so retirement was something that was a 20th century creation. Both of these first two things, adolescence and retirement, got a ton of money and societal attention, et cetera, uh, in the 20th century. A lot of government money, especially. What has midlife gotten? <laughs> midlife is the third one. Midlife Aren't you didn't supposed exi- to be able to take care of your own ass by midlife? That's exactly right. I love this. I love this. This is fun. We should spend the next three hours talking, but we're not going to. Um, <laughs> so, because uh, we got, to do, I got to do the great midlife edit. I can only talk for so long. Um, so the thing is, yes, it's such a great comment you made because there's an element of young people. Well, they're not ready to be adults yet, and older people, they're at the later stage of their life. 
Midlife, while it's a new era, because in the year 1900, longevity in the US was 47, and it was 77 in the year 2000. We added 30 years of longevity in one century. So midlife is a new creation. Yes, the premise is you're supposed to have your shit together in midlife and handle it. And that's true. And I think there's an element, the midlife crisis came up in 1965, or was coined because not everybody has their shit together. And maybe there's some fallacy to that. But then take that a few decades later, when in fact, being in midlife is not the, the era that takes you into in the working world, your hierarchy, where on the org chart, you have just paid your dues. And now you're running the show and you only have to work four to six hours a day and you go out and play golf. I mean, this is obviously, let's, let's acknowledge that what I'm describing here is generally white men of privilege, uh, older who are able to do that, that, you know, it's not everybody who fit that profile. Um, but let's just acknowledge that 40 years, 50 years later after midlife crisis got, mid, people in midlife are, are like forgotten. You know, they're going out to pasture earlier, feeling irrelevant earlier and so the idea of the crisis or the idea that people need to sort of in midlife figure it out, well, guess what? What a lot of people are using to figure it out is saying, I'm going to kill myself. You know, 60% growth in female suicides in the United States between 45 and 64, between 2000 and today, and 37% growth for men. Um, so almost 50% between the two. And the, and the reason men's is lower is not just because, oh, women... It's just men had just a higher, they were starting from a higher level. The men are five times, as of the year 2000, were five times as likely to commit suicide as women. So let's just realize, yes, everybody feels like they're supposed to have it together in midlife. And everybody feel, feels like, oh, it's supposed to be my good period of my life. It's like, well, no, there's a lot of shit that happens. There's a lot of transitional things that go on. And yes, society in some ways has conspired against you to actually make you less relevant and less powerful in this era than it would have been 50 years ago. And so why is it that we need midlife wisdom schools um, and schools and tools to help people in midlife? Because of all the things I just said. So uh, suck it up buttercup is the inappropriate response. <laughs> <laughs> it's very funny you say that because um, we've had now 39 cohorts each a week or two weeks long here. And one of the, and each cohort names themselves. And one of the cohorts a couple of weeks ago said, we're gonna call ourselves buttercup. <laughs> And I was like, why are you going to call yourself Buttercup? The 18 people are saying, it's because suck it up, Buttercup. <laughs> yeah. So, hey, fuck, figure it out is not the appropriate response because <laughs> you're telling us there's a crisis. Now, I, I, I got to ask you, sort of paint a picture of contrast for me between Joie de Vivre and Airbnb. Yeah. Well, um, Joie de Vivre was something I started at age 26. Airbnb was something I joined at age 52, and the founders were 26 when they started their company. Joie de Vivre was a boutique hotel company that innovated and, and really fundamentally as a boutique hotel company, helped to innovate the hospitality industry. Airbnb disrupted the hospitality industry. Uh, the difference between innovation and disruption is technology. And so, you know, disruption happens faster. It allows it to grow bigger. Um, and so, what I would say is that in looking back at my joie de vivre career, we were in slow motion. At the time, it didn't feel like slow motion, but today it would have felt like slow motion, even though we grew from one hotel to 52 hotels. But um, 
at Airbnb, it was like, whoa. And by the way, the I got to tell you, as a longtime yeah. traveler and customer, you yes. had great hotels. Thank you. Thank you. Well, this company still exists. I sold it nine years ago, nine and a half years ago. It's now a Hyatt company. It's Jolie's part of Hyatt. It, you, they used to, in your, in your backyard, used to, we used to have the Dream Inn, did the full renovation of the Dream Inn. It's and, so fun. Yeah, it's so it, freaking fun. It, it was a very tacky motel. We made it really nice, and uh, but you know when I and you made it we, authentic to Santa Cruz too, did. right? You Everyone, didn't like you didn't turn it into some generic thing that could have been in the you. middle of Utah, right? Dude, dude, that is it. I mean, it was hard to create fifty-two different brands. Every single one of the Joaquin hotels had its own name, its own brand. So the Hotel Vitali in San Francisco was one oh, brand. I love that hotel. Yeah. Unbelievable. Great service too. Thank you. Well, Excellent I'd, hotel. And then the Phoenix, my first hotel, you know, when I was 26, it's a, it, just a crazy no-tell motel in the Tenderloin where all the rock and roll bands were staying. And um, so I, every single one had its own identity. Long story short is, I think the big difference between Airbnb and Joie de Vivre there's so many beyond the innovation disruption thing had a lot to do with the fact that my identity back to the identity question my identity at Joie de Vivre I was like the little mini 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 version of Richard Branson I was the founder CEO the sort of bigger than life personality got a lot of press and my whole identity was frankly wrapped up in in that my whole sense of who I was you were the man right who was the man and then we would go up and down, like so we had the dot-com bust, and then we had the Great Recession. And, and so I got, you know, it was very cyclical business, and I got cyclical to my stomach. Um, so I, I, <laughs> Come I, on, that I, was I, a good one. I like that too. Um, I, so I just got to a place where I was like, wow, am I open and willing to tear the Band-Aid off, knowing that the identity was going to, strip away some of my sense of self-esteem. But I was because I really knew I needed to do something new. It was two years later that the Airbnb founders asked me to join them. And the one big difference was I was, it, my identity was not to be the founder of Airbnb or the CEO. Yes, I was the CEO whisperer. <laughs> I was the um, in-house mentor to the CEO, Brian, who was 21 years younger than me. So I was reporting to a guy 21 years younger than me, but I was also his mentor. Um, so... What was interesting is I didn't take it all so personally. And maybe that was because I was at a place in my life where I didn't take things as personally, which is, I think, true as you get older. But I think it's also true that like the baby that I created versus the, the thing I'd been asked to come in and help with, and it was a full-time job in the 70 hours a week for four, for four years, but it wasn't mine. It was, I was there to be the, not the, the, the sage on the stage, but I was the guide on the side. I was the one to help these guys and to really almost be. Do you have Do you have somebody who writes that shit for you, or do you come up with all that shit on your own? Because that is some I, very good shit, there, Chip. I have a bumper sticker company. You do. <laughs> no, I, you do. I do not. You know, I, do I need not. to get. I'm writing all this shit down. Maybe we got to get this shit transcribed because there's like. 15 t-shirts in this conversation, yeah. I think. Yeah, I know. I should run for president because, you know, I, 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 can, get, I can get the one-liners down. Or maybe I should just have a, you know... An, an, and I love, I love the delivery, contract. too. Like, you just lay them down like it was the first time you ever set them. Like, well, it's just some, like, oh, some, there he did it. Bam! And he did another yeah. one on the back of it. <laughs> it was there's a one double. Or two, there's one or two that are new on this one. But yes, most of these I've said before. Um, I don't know. At the end of the day, my experience at Airbnb allowed me 
to be in service to someone else. To, to, you know, I think as we get older, one of the things that happens is you, you feel that sense of legacy. Uh, you feel it with your kids. If you have kids, you feel it with um, how you're giving back to the planet or you get more active in your community in certain ways. You want to you give back. And so for me, it was, you know, at age 52, and I'm 59 now. So for seven years, most of my 50s, I have been in this place where I've been giving back. Now, it hasn't been without its controversy. I mean, Airbnb's been, it's like, to be a hotelier, to join Airbnb seven years ago, my hotelier friends were looking at me like, that company's never going anywhere. Why would you ever want to join them? And then two years later, I was getting all these resumes from these hoteliers saying, do you need a hotelier on your staff? Um, but it was obviously, you know, Airbnb as a disruptor is controversial in all kinds of ways. So part of my role in the company was to help the founders who are really, I would not have joined if I didn't have a ton of respect and admiration for these three young guys who are 21 to 23 years younger than me. But what I really had to help them see was like, wow, if you're going to be a, 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 a hospitality disruptor, that sounds like an oxymoron. You better be, you better be friendly and gracious and focused on how do you build a better community in the process, unlike some other sharing economy companies that actually sort of took the hubris of how they raised their money in Silicon Valley and applied that hubris to how they ran the company. And um, you know, I won't say who that was, but you know the kind of people I'm talking about. And, and I think you know, Airbnb can be faulted for all kinds of things, but I would say you know, for a company that has been a disruptor, has been challenging, has had its share of bad news on the he in headlines, you know, it's a company that I could come up with about five or six different bullet points that have it stand apart from a lot of the other sort of younger companies out there. And I think it's partly because the founders are just miraculous. They're still working together 11 years into it, which is, I think, a record for a company that has the kind of valuation, multi-billion dollar valuation that it has. Um, but I think it also, it does speak a little bit to the fact that we had modern elders. We had people like me, and I was sort of the lead modern elder in the company who were a little older and could pair ourselves with these younger leaders who are often our bosses and not be at odds with each other in this sort of boomer, millennial, you know, Gen X, millennial, Gen X, boomer kind of way where everybody's at odds with each other because of our ages. Instead, it was more like, what can I learn from you? Well, and it's interesting, in this whole diversity conversation, you don't hear much about age oh. diversity. It's, it's just so crazy here. It's, it's not like the age demography that's going on right now snuck up on us like a tsunami. I mean, it's like, no, we can see basically demographics are pretty predictable in the sense, of especially when it comes to age, you know, what's going to happen. Like actuarial tables for insurance companies have figured this out a long time ago. And yet when it comes to diversity, you know, you've got uh, gender and you've got race and you've got, um, sexual orientation and a few others and way down the list is age. And now why is that? It's partly because in some ways in, in old school companies, the age diversity issue is really a, a, an issue of we need younger people to have some power and some voice. But in Silicon Valley and in a growing number of other companies, especially if 40% of us have bosses younger than us, in a growing number of companies, the age diversity issue is how do we make sure we still value wisdom as much as we do disruption? And how do we um, look at our modern elders, the people who are as curious as they are wise and have something to bring to the table and integrate them in a way that allows their wisdom 
to have value way beyond themselves. So, um, you know, only 8% of companies that have a diversity and inclusion program have, expa- have expanded that program to include age as just a, as important of a uh, wow. metric as race, gender, and sexual orientation. And what's curious about that is there's a bunch of studies that have come out that have shown that the number one um, variable for diversity, the, uh, the number one effectiveness variable for diversity on teams, meaning what are the demogra- what's the demographic that most will create a great team is age. Um, more so than having gender or racial or sexual orientation diversity on a team, the, the, it's age, but partly because there's more cognitive diversity. Older people look at things differently than younger people. You put them on a team together, and it either is going to blow up into a mess, or more often what's going to happen is, um, you know, one plus one equals three. And so I think, I think we're in the early stages of this happening because uh, there's a grow. People now realize, gosh, people are going to work past age 65, and so we have to figure out what we're going to do with these people, not, not just as a social, you know, policy of, of you know, compassion, but frankly, as a, a means of actually being more effective. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And the other thing I'm sort of interested to check in with you about this whole sort of journey from up and coming rock star entrepreneur to been there, done that guy, you know, from, from the, the player who has a Hall of Fame career, goes to the Hall of Fame and is now the coach, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, that journey. The aha for me was during my player days, I never thought about anything other than being a player. And now when I look back on it, I go, oh, all of that? This is the reward <laughs> for that. Because now, you know what? I am the old master sensei. I've been to the fucking show. And I love nothing more than doing exactly what you described, which is learning from the next generation and hopefully contributing to the next generation. It's a blast. And it's something I never thought of until I got here. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I, um, it's one of those unexpected pleasures of aging. This sense that not only are you sometimes surprised by the intuitive wisdom that just floated out of your mouth to the younger person you're talking to, but the fact that um, the younger person you're talking to says, you're my FM. What do you mean I'm your FM? You're my future me. You know, I, I, back to what we said at the very start of this conversation, the idea, you're my role model. And so what I say, and, and this is not like you're my role model, I worship you, I want to have exactly the same life you did um, or do, but more like you're helping guide me and helping me to see what my options are for how I get older. And I actually think one of the things that's interesting is we are scared of getting older in the society partly because our body deteriorates, we see our parents deteriorate, um, society is not very focused on um, giving wisdom, you know, focusing on wisdom. Um, but there's an element that, you know, as you get older, you start to realize you have pattern recognition. And that pattern recognition serves you in so many ways. Uh, everything from, like, who you don't want to listen to anymore to what it is you want to spend your Saturday afternoon doing um, and, and you don't have FOMO anymore. Like, there's, like, no fear of missing out. You know, you're just. Matter of fact, I'm very happy to miss out. You guys go, I'll do that. (laughs) I'm staying home. (laughs) 
Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think there's an element of you settle into who you were always meant to be. And, you know, it, it took a long time sometimes to get there. It did take a very long time, but it, um, the reward is being here now. That's for sure. You and Ram Dass. <laughs> be here yeah. now. Look at you sneaking in that, that <laughs> religious content. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Yeah. Um, now, anything else you want to touch on before we wrap, Chip? No, I think this has been great. I appreciate uh, that we are both near the beach, and uh, someday we may, maybe we'll even surf together. Although, for me to call myself uh, a surfer is uh, doing one of the be- the worst things you could ever do, which is. Uh, you can't be the noun if you don't do the verb. And so I need to, <laughs> I, I need to surf more. Um, but I'm not well, going to surf right me, now. It took me five years surfing. to suck. So um, yeah. we, we can go surfing together for sure. Exactly. <laughs> and you're welcome back anytime, Chip. You're awesome. You've had an incredible career. I thank love you. what you're doing now. And thank you for being so generous. Perfect. Great to be with you, Christopher. There he is, the legendary Chip Conley. Wasn't that a fun one? Isn't he a cool guy? And if you enjoyed this episode, I think you'd probably also really enjoy episode 94 of Follow Your Different with Jules Pieri. She's the founder of a legendary product launch company called The Gromit. And uh, we have a fantastic conversation about uh, how to create new products today. And uh, if you want to send us email, if you must, send email to blackhole at lockhead.com. And uh, I'll tell you, the inbound lately has been going mental Uh, Candy Dandy and I are doing our best to follow up. If by chance you have sent us email or a tweet or a LinkedIn or something and we haven't got back to you, uh, feel free to whack at us again. We're doing our best to keep up. But uh, uh, please know that we appreciate every email, every tweet, and most importantly, every social share. All right. We would like to thank the legendary Chip Conley and his new book. Check it out wherever you get books. It's called Wisdom at Work. The Making of a Modern Elder. That's Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. My friends at OneLifeFullyLive.org want to help you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check them out. This is the nonprofit that's helping you take your life to a whole new place. The number one OneLifeFullyLived.org. GrowWire.com. It's what growth-oriented, entrepreneurially-oriented people are reading on the internet today. Check it out. GrowWire.com. And my friends at Bottleneck Virtual Assistants want to help you scale the power of you uh, with the power of a virtual assistant. Check them out today at bottleneck.online. That's bottleneck.online. Now, are you in Silicon Valley? Are you uh, a leader in a B2B company? If you are, my friends at Atranet want to help you build a world-class website that will communicate the value and power of your company like your best uh, salespeople and your best spokespeople. Check out atre.net today. That's atrenet, atre.net today. And the folks at World Wildlife are helping to make a giant difference uh, around the world, and in particular with these horrible tragedy, uh, tragic fires in Australia. Check out worldwildlife.org. That's worldwildlife.org. All right, I need to remind you that this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed. And of course... As always, we need to warn you that this podcast does get created in a studio that contains nuts. (laughs) I want to say a big thank you to Chris Guest for having me on the Lean Startup Podcast uh, recently. And if you love podcasts, check out the Lean Startup Podcast. And the episode I'm on is titled Name the Category, Own the Market. Uh, Don't forget to teach entrepreneurship. I don't feel tardy. Don't be lame. Get out of the passing lane. 
Uh, don't forget to listen to Blue Rodeo. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies goes out to uh, goes out to Elizabeth Holmes, uh, CEO of Theranos. Sorry, Lizzie, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much. I deeply appreciate you investing part of your life with me. Please stay legendary. And of course, until we're together again, follow your difference.